And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans. And last week we began chapter 4 by looking at verses 1 through 8. And you remember I had the entire chapter printed in the bulletin because I was very ambitious thinking I would get through the entire chapter in one message. And I thought I'd finish the chapter this week. But then I realized as I was studying that once again, it's good to stop and smell the roses, not get through too much. So I'm just going to look at verses 9 through 12 this morning. Verses 9 through 12 as we consider uh, the scope of God's righteousness. Now last time we were together, we looked at the nature of God's righteousness when we looked at Abraham, and we learned that he was blessed with God's righteousness as a result of his faith, and not as a result of any of his works. And we also learned that through King David, that the essence of God's righteousness, his blessing on his people, is the forgiveness of sins. That is the critical matter. God's righteousness is conferred through the forgiveness of sins. And so when we receive his righteousness, our sins are forgiven and dealt with, and we stand faultless before a holy God. Now Paul has spent the first eight verses of this chapter pointing out that Abraham, the father of the faith, and King David, arguably the most well-known of all Israel's kings, were both justified by faith alone. And now, lest his readers think that justification by faith alone is restricted to Jews or to Israel, Paul asks a very important question at the beginning of verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? Put it another way, who is a recipient of the blessing of God's righteousness and forgiveness? Who qualifies for this blessing? And Paul's going to spend these verses thrashing that question out and answering it for us. And I'd like to break it down this way this morning. Here are three points, three things I'd like you to catch. Number one, God gave righteousness to Abraham apart from circumcision. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. The second thing in the first part of verse 11 is this, that righteousness and its sign and seal is the gift of circumcision. Let me put it this way. Righteousness has as its sign and seal the gift of circumcision. And that is in verse 11a. And then thirdly and finally, righteousness is given with or without circumcision. And we see that in 11b and verse 12. So along with an outline of the message, let's ask in prayer our Lord to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, forgive the preacher for his sins are many. We wish to see Jesus and him only. And we ask that you would visit us as we look into your word, as we listen to your voice, the great shepherd of the sheep, and as you work according to your good pleasure in all of our lives. Bless our time of study together now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, first of all, God gave righteousness to Abraham apart from circumcision. You see that in verse 9a. Paul asked the question, uh, is this blessing on the circumcised, that is to say on Jews only, or does it include the uncircumcised, that is Gentiles? And Paul immediately restates in verse 9b the principle from Genesis 15, 6, which dominates this entire chapter. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on to ask, how then was it credited? And really the question is, when was it credited? When did Abraham receive circumcision? And of course, Paul immediately answers his own question in verse 10b, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so Paul makes clear that God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness happened before he was circumcised, not after. And it's important to remember that God's promise to Abraham was given in Genesis 15. That's where we find Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, it's important to remember that the rite of circumcision, the sign and the seal of circumcision was not given until Genesis 17. And this is approximately 14 years after God gave the promise to Abraham. Isn't that something? There's an approximate 14-year gap between Genesis 15 and 17. And so the point is, Paul is saying that Abraham was a Gentile pagan when the promise was given to him. Abraham had no intent or zeal to know the living God until God revealed himself to Abraham. And Paul is boldly stating that God's righteousness was available to a Gentile pagan first. Now, for a conscientious Jew, that would be astounding. How can you possibly say such things, Paul? Well, he's saying, look at the Scriptures. You don't have to go any further than Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 to see this play out. Our justification by faith is founded upon God's grace and mercy and nothing that we do. But a conscientious Jew would say, ah, there's Father Abraham. He's the perfect one. There are many Jews that didn't even think that Abraham was a sinner. If you read the Mishnah, part of other rabbinic literature, you'll find that they took this man and made him a poster child of everything that is right, good, and perfect as a human being. Why? Because he obeyed the law. And they pumped him up and pumped him up and they forget the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 when he lied to Pharaoh or Abimelech. And then again, later on, I believe in 18, when he lied again about Sarah, his wife. This man was a pagan. And yet God, because of his rich grace and mercy and for no other reason, gave Abraham forgiveness and righteousness. Now this is very important. Why? Because the gospel is not something that we simply receive once. The gospel is something that we must rehearse to ourselves all the time. 
That's how we grow in sanctification. Because human beings have an incurably a disease that is always comparing ourselves with somebody else. Yes, I'm saved by grace, but I'm a better Christian than so-and-so. Or they're better than me. Or God loves them more than me. Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Does God love these other Christians more than me? And we are constantly forgetting that there is no one outside of ourselves who is any more justified by God's grace than we are. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. And you are as justified now as you ever will be. And that's a great encouragement. Because that is the ground of my faith. That I'm justified by God's grace. That there is nothing I can add to that. You know, so many people take their justification and they get it backwards with their sanctification. We're justified by God's grace through faith Alone, And then we spend an entire lifetime as God develops and brings that faith to the surface. As we seek to live our lives in obedience to His commands. Well, some people spend their entire lives thinking, if I just do this or that, if I get this down or that down, that I will be more acceptable to God. No, you are as acceptable to God now because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ as you ever will be. And that's what gives you the peace and the composure to rest upon your trust in the Lord and to watch Him grow and develop you throughout a lifetime. We'll never be more justified before God than we are this very moment. We are fully, completely justified because of His grace and mercy and not because of anything we have done. And so Paul tells us, what is the scope of this righteousness? It goes beyond the borders of Israel. And it says, even those Gentiles can be saved. And not only that, before Abraham ever became the father of the faith to you Jews, he was a Gentile pagan. It was God's grace that made the difference in his life. And it's his grace which makes the difference in your life. And so you don't have to go through life comparing your life with somebody else's. Because the Lord loves you fully and completely. And you are his blood-bought child forever. Well, God gave righteousness to Abraham apart from circumcision. Now, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in the second point. In the first part of verse 11, righteousness has, as its sign and seal, the gift of circumcision. You'll notice verse 11. Read it carefully. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised. Now, the whole tenor of this single phrase is saturated with the grace of God. First, Paul makes it clear that circumcision is a gift from God. He, Abraham, received, received the sign of circumcision. This is very important in connection to the fundamental nature of a sacrament. We have sacraments in the Old Testament as well as the New. What is a sacrament? It's a sign and seal of God's grace and favor and of His promises. Whenever God entered into a covenant with His people, He gave a sign. 
To Noah, he gave the sign of the rainbow, a sign and a seal of his promise to preserve the earth from that time on. He gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had before he was circumcised. Moses was given the Passover meal to give to the Israelites a sign of God's deliverance, which would point to his ultimate deliverance from sin. And Jesus himself, with the new covenant, the signs and seals of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Signs and seals are not essential to the reality they represent. God doesn't have to give us anything beyond his word for us to believe. God cannot lie. But you see, the Lord is sensitive to our weakness. The Lord knows our frame. And so a sign and a seal isn't necessary, but according to the grace and pleasure of God, he sees to it that he does it on our behalf. Let me put it this way. A wedding can't take, can a wedding take place without rings? You know, perhaps you thought, if I go to a wedding and there's not an exchange of rings, is that wedding legitimate? Is that marriage legitimate? Well, the rings don't make the marriage legitimate. They are a sign and a seal of the devotion and the love and commitment given in word by the husband and the new wife. Rings don't make it any more legal. It is a sign, a ring is a sign that functions as a seal between the husband and wife. So while they're not essential, nevertheless, God has always been pleased to add various signs as his seal to the gracious promises he makes to us because he knows of our weaknesses. The sign functions as his seal of saving and sustaining grace. And so Paul makes it clear, first of all, this circumcision to you Jews is a gift. Don't look at your circumcision as something you do. It is a gift from God from first to last. Yes, you participate in it, but you do so thinking and reflecting upon God's grace and mercy, not looking at yourself as saying, oh, we're the circumcised, we're better than others. No, Paul says it's a gift. Secondly, Paul makes it clear that God's sign of circumcision functions as his seal, his attestation concerning the righteousness freely given to Abraham. How does he know this? Well, Genesis 17, 11. Once again, he goes back to the scriptures. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and you, says the Lord. It was a sign that functioned as a seal. Now, you know what a seal is. I know, only because I watch uh, Jane Austen movies. You know. <laughs> a seal, whenever, uh, I think it was Darcy, in one of the uh, movies, I can't even remember the name of it now, very long, six different tapes. But uh, he wrote a letter to Elizabeth, and he takes that wax uh, pen, and he lights a candle to it, and that wax drips, and then he takes his seal, and he stamps it. So there's no question about the authenticity of this letter when it reaches the person to whom it is intended. Well, that's what God is doing. God is giving his seal, his statement of authenticity. And God's signs and seals were never intended to point first and foremost to my faith, but to God's faithfulness. 
It's important for this reason. The sacraments of God's covenant never, never are signs of my faith. No, they are always signs and seals of God's grace. And if you don't get that clear in your head, it presents a great, great handicap to your faith. The rainbow in the sky, was that a sign to Noah that he was a believer? No. The rainbow was a sign that God was keeping his promise to Noah and to all of creation. And when we think about circumcision, God meant it to be a sign and a seal of his gracious righteousness and the grace freely given to Abraham. Paul's readers were mistaking the engagement ring for the fiancé, we might say. You know, the young woman who is engaged, if all she thinks about is that ring, and not what the ring represents. The ring represents the fiancé, the one that she will join her life together. And that's what these Jews were doing. They were looking at their circumcision. They were focused on their circumcision instead of what their circumcision meant. Put it this way, a young girl admiring her engagement ring. You know how sometimes you see when somebody's showing off a ring on Facebook or other social media, and they're just looking at that ring. You can look at it two ways. One, her marriage is doomed if she's thinking about how much the ring cost. But there's great hope for the marriage if she's thinking how much he paid because of his great love for me. And Paul is trying to get his readers to see that circumcision was not the basis or foundation of their justification. It is God's sign and seal of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had while uncircumcised. See, the nature of biblical faith is not to look at ourselves and what we have done. It's to look away from ourselves to God and all that he has done previously on our behalf. Why was it just the males? Some have asked that question. Why was it just the males that God gave this sign? Well, the answer is that it wasn't the fullness of time yet. God was just beginning his purposes. And in the fullness of time, Christ would come. And in the fullness of God's revelation and salvation, both male and female would be included in the covenant sign. But not at this point. The sign and the seal was given, or to be given not only to Abraham, but also to his eight-day-old child. And the sign and the seal meant exactly the same thing to the child as it did to Abraham. God was saying, this is my promise. This is my sign and seal. I want you to remember this. But when you look at the sign and seal, when you think about the sign and seal, it's not first and foremost merely a sign of your faith. It's a sign of God's faithfulness. That's so important. You know, baptism is not simply a sign and seal of my faith. If that's all it was, then what happens when my faith begins to weaken? What happens when I'm struggling with my faith? My baptism's no, no good at that point. What I need to do is look at God's faithfulness. And when you look at your baptism, you look through it and you see the baptism of Christ. Christ was baptized with blood on Calvary. Christ went through the bloody circumcision as he perished on Calvary. Why? To secure your salvation and mine. 
to forgive us of our sins. You see, the general point is nothing, absolutely nothing Abraham did was placed on the foundation that he was justified by God's grace. And he received the sign and seal of God's grace and God's faithfulness so that every time he thought about it, he would think about the Lord. Not that he did this. You know, tragic in the Old Testament, God's people took that sign, and we see the fruit of it here. They paraded their circumcision. They paraded the law that we'll read about next time. And we find those awful words that circumcised has become uncircumcised. We could even say that in the New Covenant. The baptized has become unbaptized. Because whenever you take a sign or a seal or anything else that the Bible presents and you begin to lose sight of your salvation by grace through faith in Christ, you're on dangerous ground. And your baptism can become unbaptism if you neglect and forget the gospel. You look to your baptism in order that your baptism, like a mirror, may cause you to reflect on Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he came into the world to do. And you see, when you do that, that draws faith. I don't care when you were baptized or the way that you were baptized. But the fact of the matter is, baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant draws faith out from you. And that's why we call it a means of God's grace. We participate in it so that by God's grace we grow. And in times of difficulty and struggle, we look to Christ. We don't look at ourselves and say, well, I did this on such and such a date. I looked back here and did this. No, you look to Christ. That's what faith always does. It looks away from itself and just like Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Take your eyes off self and make sure, as Paul is stressing here, that when you look at the sign and the seal, don't glory in the sign. And don't think it's some seal by you to stay committed. No, it's all of God and all of His grace. Well, Righteousness. God gave righteousness to Abraham apart from circumcision. And then secondly, righteousness has as its sign and seal the gift of circumcision. Finally, in verse 11b and 12, righteousness is given with or without circumcision. Paul makes this clear in these verses. Abraham, accordingly, is the true father of all who, like him, believe in God and take him at his word. He is the father of uncircumcised believers for he himself was uncircumcised when his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then in verse 12, he is also the father of circumcised believers too. Not so much on the ground of their circumcision, but on the ground of their faith. Those who are circumcised, those who are Jews, who follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. The question, what relation, if any, lies between Abraham's being justified by faith and the right of circumcision? For a Jew, this was a matter of great importance, because circumcision was the outward and visible sign of God's covenant with Abraham. What was Abraham's condition when he was justified by faith? Was he circumcised or uncircumcised? And to this, there could be only one answer. He was 
uncircumcised. And the covenant of circumcision was not introduced until a later stage, as we've already mentioned, so many years later. Ladies and gentlemen, look to your baptism. And next Sunday, whenever we come to the Lord's table, don't just get caught up in the fact that you're doing the sign. But think about the sign as God's seal. His grace and his mercy to save you and to sustain you all the way through your life. There's hope for the Gentiles here. You know, he says, Abraham is the father of the circumcision and the father of those who are uncircumcised. You see how the gospel breaks down barriers? Every barrier there is, it just tears it apart. And we all come together at the foot of the cross. And so a Jew can say, I'm a child of Abraham, just like a Gentile. I am a child of Abraham. Because it's all based not on what Abraham did, but on God's faithfulness. His sovereign grace and faithfulness in saving a people for himself. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul and all that he brings out in these letters. Father, we praise you for the signs and seals that you have given to us to demonstrate your grace and mercy and your kindness in our lives year after year. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give a whole new emphasis in our hearts and minds every time we participate in the sacraments, that, Lord, we would see your hand more clearly than ever before and your sustaining grace and mercy in our lives through the gospel. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for your workings in our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and sing a closing hymn, an appropriate hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, number 708. Let's stand together. <clears throat>